We acknowledge that we are situated on and recording from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in what is now called Ontario. We recognize that Maud comes from a land she referred to as Prince Edward Island, but the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq, call it Ebigwit. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are commentary on the life, times, and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and are solely those of the podcast authors, their guests, or those participating in the podcast and do not represent those of the heirs of Ella Montgomery. so happy to be here with you. Hello and a big welcome to Maud, Books, Babes, and Barbiturates, a six-part series examining the life of Anne of Green Gables author L.M. Montgomery. This is episode one, Biography is a Screaming Farce. First, we need to introduce ourselves. I'm Steph Drummond. And I am Jen McLennan. And we are childhood friends and longtime L.M. Montgomery enthusiasts. Warning, we are not historians and we are not academics. If you want literary criticism and an unbiased telling of Maud's life, we advise you to shut us down right now and pick up something by biographers Dr. Elizabeth Hillman Watterson and Dr. Mary Henley Rubio. Like a rich Pinot Noir, may we suggest Dr. Rubio's The Gift of Wings. It's the gold medalist in the LMM Olympics and you should 100% get into it. We did and we have loved it many times over, but our aim is to uncover who we believe the real Ellen Montgomery to be and share her with you. She deserves more attention, another platform, and maybe a little more focus towards her emotional life. We want to take what we have learned from years of digging and questioning and lay it out there. Share the facts and a few of our ideas and you can take it or leave it. As Maud said in a letter to her lifelong pen pal Ephraim Weber on November 10th, 1907. Biographies, even the best ones, are one, or at the most, two-sided. And every human being has half a dozen different sides. It must always be that way until some medium of communication is found for soul moods. And I know I wouldn't want some of my soul moods depicted. No. Nor any of them. For the evil ones would shame me, and the good ones would be desecrated by revelation. She's probably right. And that communication device for ciphering soul moods has still not been invented. So, how can we, how can anyone ever know what is going on in another human's life, an inner life, especially if that person has been dead since 1942? And Maud, as per usual, is totally right. This is one big screaming farce. Therefore, we don't take ourselves super seriously, and you don't have to either. We do get very excited when we find a photograph that relates to something we've read, or when we have a new idea or theory about her life and work. And we want to share it with you, the Mod Squad. You'll know you're a true Mod fan if you read Ellen Montgomery instead of Sweet Valley. Or if you got up in grade 11 drama class in your mom's wedding dress to recite The Highwayman. That's another strong indicator. So hey, if that's you or sort of you, climb on board. If you loved it when you were little, still cracked it open when you were a grown-up like some cozy blanket and thought, Whoa, I love Montgomery in a deep, visceral way. You too are probably a member of the Mod Squad. Way to pick a strong leader in Ellen Montgomery. Because we have a theory. We believe that Maud, not Anne, is the feminist icon of our time. When Anne dropped in 1908, Ellen Montgomery gave the world a new version of the ingenue. Readers bought into a fiery, hyper-intelligent redhead being the lead. And Anne will always be around, and we love her. She's our gateway drug to Maud. 
Canada loves to praise Anne, give her a series every eight years, put her on a stamp, and even though we loved Slate Magazine's spot-on article, Why Anne of Green Gables is the Patron Saint of Female Outsiders, by Nora Kaplan Bricker, check her out. She's in the show notes. It's close, but no raspberry cordial. The Patron Saint is Maud herself. So, let's do this. First things first, unbutton that corset and take a swig of dandelion wine. Forget Anne, Emily, and Pat as we're about to uncover the truth behind the real badass and tragic heroine, the heroine for your adulthood, Lucy Maud Montgomery. And we want to do this the right way. We read that Maud's son, the late Dr. Stuart MacDonald, wanted her story told within three parameters. He wanted, number one, the truth, and we will do our best. He told Mary Rubio that Maud hated a prettied up biography. Fair enough. Number two, let people know what she was up against. Check, you are going to be shocked and you'll be wowed and you'll be horrified by all the pressures this woman was under while she was still bringing you your favorite heroines. And finally, number three, he wanted people to learn from her mistakes. Okay, we can try and tell that part of the story also, because the more we read and the more we realized Maud was not this willowy Anne of Ingleside cardboard cutout, we realized she was a genius. But like all of us, she also made mistakes and she had other shades to her personality. And we had heard rumblings of a more troubled side, we were raised in Canada, and we have ties to Montgomery in our own small ways. My grandma lived near Norval, Ontario at the same time as Maud did, and Steph's family came from PEI. My grandmother remembered taking school tests with Stuart and Chester, and she echoed what we had all learned, which was that Chester was a cad and Stuart was the golden boy. She also remembered seeing Maud in the church basement, jotting down notes on the paper tablecloth and tearing off the piece. No doubt it was her character study of people in the room, and she could use them in her books. I was wowed that my grandma was even in the same room with her. But we had both heard stories. Rumors that she was actually depressed a lot of the time, or not so full of the Kifferly, as my aunties would say. That she over-medicated, that her husband was a weirdo, and her oldest son no better. But we both grew up loving her novels, and Kevin Sullivan's Anne. Shout out to Megan Follows! And we thought, hey, it must be small-town gossip. We wanted to believe the version of Maud from her namesake and niece, Actually, a second cousin, Maud McLeod. This clip is from CBC's 1994 The Compass episode, I Love Lucy. Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote extensive journals. Her most private thoughts reveal an often troubled woman, but that's not the person her namesake remembers. Mom was a jolly person, and they had so much, they spent a lot of time laughing, you know, and joking. And uh, now since these journals come out, and they talk about this mournful and depression. I can't. It just doesn't fit with anything I remember. For her part, Maud won't read the journals because she wants to remember her aunt with her own special memories. But for Georgie and Amy, the journals help explain some things they didn't understand as children. How their aunt coped with all the pressures she faced, like the lawsuit launched against her publishers, Page and Company. Fair enough. That's why we think that she was taking too much of that when she was writing those journals. We all feel that. Well, it was that, there and all. Uh, well, well, it's like Athenobarbital. But that, that's after us. I mean, that's she, after, was, she was in Leaksdale in and, and flying to Page Company, and they were being, you know, she was having trouble with the Page Lawsuits company. Lawsuits and whatever. Yeah. And uh, she needed something. I need to start by saying I love a solid East Coast accent, but what you also hear is how the older generation of Maud's family only saw or chose to see one aspect of her personality. But when the Globe and Mail released an article 
the heartbreaking truth about Anne's creator back in 2008, her remaining family bravely shared with the world that Maude committed suicide. We have the article and we have it in the show notes for you. We were shocked and at first really upset. I remember I was jogging through this part of High Park in Toronto that reminded me of the haunted wood and I was thinking, is this true? How can this be true? How, how could you do that, Maude? But mostly, why? Why did you? We wanted Anne's creator to be happy, for those rumors to just be rumors. And this was confirmation that it wasn't all just talk. How could this be, right? The woman who gave us the dearest and most loving and delightful child since the immortal Alice, thank you, Mark Twain, she took her own life? This was the inciting instant for us, our beginning. We needed to know more, so we started with the basics. Steph and I together, like we were still in high school doing assignments, we just jumped in. But this was going to be our biggest assignment yet. I remember walking into the Deer Park Library and seeing all of her journals lined up on the shelf, and I spent the day there reading. We read all these selected journals, meticulously curated by Elizabeth Waterston and Mary Rubio. They are epic. Dr. Rubio believes that the sheer number of pages, close to 5,000, make Ella Montgomery one of the most readable female diarists of the 20th century. That on its own is remarkable, and everyone should know that, and now you do. So we were immediately hooked. Although I ended up reading her last journals first, and I didn't question the outcome of her life because of that, I was relieved to jump into the joy of her first journals with Steph. Because much of her humor, it was over our heads as kids. We didn't really remember that Maude was hilarious, and Maude was hilarious. No wonder we missed it, because a lot of her comedy is more sophisticated, but she was laugh-out-loud funny. She would trash boys and dresses and girlfriends. You know, that's not maybe very nice, but she was very funny about it. Um, She constantly made us laugh. Like this quote about this rather lame woman from her boarding house on December 25th, 1895. I went into the teacher's parlor and seeing Miss Whiteside and Miss Tilsley there alone, as I supposed, I said, isn't this a lovely morning, girls? Up popped Miss Claxton from a low chair where she had been squatted unseen. You should not call us girls, she piped frigidly. It is not respectful. Oh, I beg your pardon, Miss Claxton, I said politely. I did not see you there. Of course, I would never refer to you as a girl. Snap. She was catty, boy crazy, generous, Loyal, a brilliant student, a foodie, a photographer, a kitty cat lady, a genius, but mostly a great time. With every journal entry, we'd banter back and forth about her leading on dudes for rides in the winter, about her undying loyalty to her grandma, her solo cross-country escape from a terrible stepmother, her hot time with a babe from Lower Bedeck. It read like scenes from our 80s Anna Green Gables. Better, actually. She was like a sexy, daring Anne. Woohoo! The relief. She was a hardworking genius and she was able to have a great time. Sure, she was a bit sad some days, but aren't we all? Couldn't it just be rumors that she was depressed and committed suicide? And didn't Maud herself call her journals her grumble book? So we like to think that she was down sometimes, but mostly great times. And then in 1901, she went to Halifax to be a journalist at the Daily Echo. We were so excited. We thought she was going to have her big Nellie Bly moment, $5 a week, freedom from caretaking for her grandmother. But something shifted. She seemed very depressed. She suffered from terrible headaches. What was it? We would wonder aloud to each other. Was it seasonal depression? Was it exhaustion? Was it really bad PMS? We'd check WebMD like we thought we could help her. And of course we couldn't. So regretfully, we finally added one more significant factor to Maud's qualities. She suffered from mental illness. 
and she fought it hard. That woman was a fighter. Tenacity. Put it on the list. Uh, From her mid-twenties onward, we started to see how life chipped away at her as she went from spicy parlor makeouts to an eventual addiction to over-the-counter barbiturates. And it was not her fault. It's never anyone's fault. Although we initially, I especially initially wanted to get lost in the imagery of school children chilling milk bottles in the rivers and picking spruce gum, the truth was there was darkness from the very beginning. Maud was born in Prince Edward Island in 1874 to her mom Clara and dad Hugh, who may have had a shotgun wedding due to Clara being pregnant. Maud was born not quite nine months after the marriage. When she was almost two years old, poor 22-year-old Clara died of tuberculosis. Maud always said her first memory was of touching the waxen cheek of her dead mother as she laid out in her coffin. It's a brutal first memory. She wrote about it in her autobiography, The Alpine Path, The Story of My Career, in 1917. I did not feel any sorrow, for I knew nothing of what it all meant. I was only vaguely troubled. Why was mother so still, and why was father crying? I reached down and laid my baby hand against mother's cheek. Even yet, I can feel the coldness of that touch. She often brought this memory up. She fantasized about her life if only her mother had lived. It makes sense that she spent her entire career writing about orphans, doesn't it? And then to make things worse, after Claire died, Hugh bailed. He wanted a clean slate and a kid, I guess, cramped his style, and so Maud was just dumped. Hugh headed thousands of miles across Canada to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and he landed himself a young new wife. Congratulations, Hugh. Years later... Hugh finally asked 15-year-old Maud to come and live with him. And we were excited at this concept. She was excited in her diaries. She had dreamed of having a new family, a mother. But on Hugh's side, his invitation to bring his daughter out happened conveniently when his young wife was pregnant and they needed help with a toddler. Maud trekked all the way across the country by train to give this new life with her dad a try. It lasted one year. When Hugh pulled Maud out of school to essentially be their maid, Maud had the tenacity to get herself out of there, alone, almost the entire way back to PEI. Then, teenagers, teenage girls especially, never traveled without a guardian. The rails in the lodges were dodgy at best, but she did it, and thankfully made it back safely. The island may not have been perfect, but at least she could keep going to school. That her father subjected her to that potential danger, in addition to pulling her out of school, to us, shows his true colors. But again, this is just our opinion. Maud never admitted any hard feelings towards her father, at least in the journals. We chalk this up to pride, another Maud quality. But the facts are, she named her second son, Hugh, who tragically was stillborn, and dedicated Anne Green Gables to the memory of my father and mother. She would always reflect on Hugh as a loving parent, like here in May 1904, commenting on his death in 1900. There was no one to call me or think of me as dear little Maud now. Father's little Maud has grown up a lonely woman, missing his love and pride and tenderness heartbreakingly. Oh, my dear father, if you were still living, everything would be worthwhile. But I am tired of striving and struggling, yea, even of attaining when there is nobody to care for my success. But there were people who cared for her, people who instilled in her a deep pride in her Scottish heritage. She was essentially raised by strict maternal grandparents on their farm in Cavendish, BEI, 
They weren't terrible people, but they were no Matthew and Marilla. They didn't change their ways with the arrival of a high-spirited granddaughter. And although we have discovered that Grandmother McNeil did go out on a limb for her granddaughter many times over, she even ensured that Bright Maud could read well before she went to school. Both grandparents were older and had already raised a family. Maud forever maintained an equal parts loyalty and loathing towards her grandmother throughout her life. The harshness of her grandfather, however, left its impression on her. Although Matthew kept Anne instead of a boy, we don't think grandfather would have done the same for Maud. He favored the grandsons, paying for their education, and leaving them the farm. Maud was not a fan. We read in the Alpine Path, which is her aforementioned autobiography, and in her later journals we read that she had this lonesome childhood and that she was lost in sadness with her only solace being writing. But this wasn't ringing true for us given what we'd read earlier on. To us, we thought she had a lot of fun. She had a lot of friends, a killer fashion sense, and this deep self-love that must have come from somebody, somewhere. So this was the first time that we noticed a discrepancy in the journals. Which part of the journals or the memory was true? Did she have a lonely childhood with only her writing as a friend? And were all those parties and the early successes she described, were they lies? No. We dug a bit further and we realized these were her edited journals. And not just edited by Rubio and Waterston, but edited by Maud herself. Rubio writes in The Gift of Wings that Maud, when she was in her mid-40s, introduced the character of a sad and lonesome Maudie. This was to make her tale of climbing to the top of the charts that much more impressive. And now we get it. Thank you, Dr. Rubio. In 1919, when Maud was in her 40s and she was at her height of fame, she went back and she reworked the earlier life story. By then, she was famous and she was crafting her journals to be read by many people in the future. She wanted to ensure the story was told her way. And we get that. She needed to emphasize how bleak the beginnings were to make that rise to fame that much better. Regs to riches style. Well, well written, Element Montgomery. We thought we got you, and you are right. We definitely have been part of the farce. But did we want to be? No, no way. We wanted to see this for ourselves. So when we learned that we could go and see the original journals in the archives at the University of Guelph, we made that journey to see it. And we can't stress to you folks how beautifully cared for and lovely the archives are. You should go when you're able. We were alone in the quiet of the archives, and we excitedly donned our gloves that were required we were taken aback by the oversized books that were her journals, and we flipped through these thin pages. We were thrilled to discover all the blacked-out marks, and in some cases, clearly razored-out sections. My grandmother had always instilled in me a diary writing practice. She kept a daily record for 90 years, and she said to me, Jenny, never write anything down that you might not like someone to know one day. Well, Maud obviously lived in the same village and at the same time as my grandmother for a portion, it was clear that she had toiled over her journals for years, getting really clear about what she was willing to share with the world or not. The unedited journals were not only rewritten, but they were butchered. And the gaps are at places where we have big questions. Like, did she really love Ewan before she was married? Did he become such a strange man that she didn't want us to know that she cared for him before? What part of the story did she not want told? So we kept digging. And not to tell Maud's secrets, but to try to understand her. We went through her archived possessions and her photos. And then when we were going through her personal books, her novels that she kept, we hit an Agatha Christie mystery. Maud was a huge fan. And there was a personal discovery in those books that we will reveal in episode three. As we continued, we flipped through more journal pages and we passed through the years. What couldn't be argued was that the entries are so desperate by the end that they're pretty hard to get through. Poor Maud. But what did lead her to that end? What was the tipping point after such success? 
that had her plummet so low? Was she too dragged down by the tragic life of her husband and her son and her own lifetime of depression? Or was it not suicide at all? I mean, Steph and I had always assumed that that mysterious page 176 that was laid out carefully on her bedside table was her suicide note. Isn't that what the Globe and Mail had told us? When her son, Stuart, came to identify Maud's body at home, he found that note on her bedside table. He folded it carefully and he kept it in his possession. Until later, he gave it to Dr. Rubio. Years later. In more recent years, Dr. Rubio, with the assistance of archivist Vanessa Brown, presented another theory about the end of Maud's life. What? Didn't we just spend a bunch of time laying out Maud's struggle with mental illness and her family's admission? But wait, could it be an unintentional overdose? She had lost a ton of weight quickly, and maybe her poor body couldn't take it. That she took too many pills by accident? Dr. Lane, her physician and across-the-street neighbor, had been to see her that morning, so he could have given her a hypodermic needle. There was never an autopsy. So maybe this admission from the family in 2008 wasn't accurate. Oh, Maud, everywhere we look, we find twists and turns. We believe that as we unravel the mysteries of Maud's rich, complicated emotional life on top of her brilliant writing, we will reveal our real Canadian heroine, Warts, Sorry, Maudie. Not wards, beauty marks. And all. Next week, we happily head to Avonlea. Anne was likely the girl who started all of this for most of our mod squad. The story of that little red-haired orphan was a worldwide success. The book appealed to people of all ages. Think Harry Potter with braids. Thanks for listening to the first of six episodes of Mod Books, Babes, and Barbiturates. And you better hold on to your petticoats because next time... We're going to have a Lee. Woo! I'm really <laughs> excited. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. you. Ellen Montgomery's journal entries are read by Nola Augustson.